Every week we go to the scriptures because it's there that the person and work of Jesus are most clearly revealed. So our sermon this week will be from Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Peace be with you. If I have not met you yet, my name is Paul Ramsey. I am one of the pastors here at Sojourn. It's a joy to be with you this morning, an honor to be preaching from God's word this morning. Uh, I hope you had a wonderful Christmas week this past week. Um, it was great to see many of you here on Thursday for Christmas Eve. Uh, a lot of you got to join us uh, online for the live stream. Uh, it was a wonderful Advent season this year, a much needed uh, uh, week and season of rest in the middle of a crazy, excuse me, at the end. Lord willing, have a crazy year. After celebrating uh, the arrival of Jesus on Thursday, uh, on Christmas Eve, uh, I have the honor this morning of moving us into a series that will carry us, I believe, through Easter, uh, which will be on April 4th this year. Today and in the coming weeks, we're going to be taking uh, something of a deep dive into a part of the ministry of Jesus that's recounted for us in Matthew chapters 3 through 7. Over the next couple of weeks, we'll be in Matthew in chapters 3 and 4, which kind of introduce uh, the Sermon on the Mount, which is this beautiful teaching of Jesus that extends from Matthew 5 through Matthew 7, which we'll be spending a number of weeks in uh, uh, leading up to Easter. This morning, as you heard Nate just read for us, we're at the beginning of Matthew chapter 3, and we jump from the arrival and birth of Jesus, which Matthew records in chapters 1 and 2. We jump 30 years ahead. Uh, into the beginning of chapter 3. Here we're introduced to a man named John, a prophet who shows up in the wilderness announcing the nearness of what he calls the kingdom of heaven. 
in order to prepare the way for the ministry of Jesus, to prepare God's people for the arrival of their Savior. We all come across situations in our lives where we face crises, uh, problems that, that we face. Sometimes these crises are small, sometimes they're big, sometimes they're personal, sometimes they're communal, sometimes they're relatively easy to resolve, sometimes they are quite difficult to resolve. But in nearly every case, uh, the way to resolve crises follows a relatively clear and similar path. Step one, you define the problem. Step two, you brainstorm solutions. Step three, you choose the correct solution. And step four, you then implement, having chosen, which is sometimes a very difficult part of the process, you implement the correct solution. John, in this story from the Bible, John uh, fills a very important part in the problem definition and resolution that God's people, that all humanity, that all creation faces. It's only one step in the problem-solving process, but it is a critical one. Matthew begins in verse 1 of chapter 3 with the phrase, in those days. In those days, he writes, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Let me take just a moment and explain for us what was going on in those days. As I said uh, just a moment ago, Matthew has jumped 30 years, 30, 30 or so years ahead of where Jesus' birth was uh, and the events in chapters 1 and 2. And in the season of Advent, we uh, often remember the spectacular events that surround Jesus' birth, like the virgin uh, conception, the, sh the, the appearance of angels to a number of people, this chorus of angels that appears to shepherds in the field, um, these foreign dignitaries who see a star that has appeared in the sky that leads them right to uh, the place where Jesus was. Uh, but it's important to notice that while, we, while it's good to remember those things, for most of the world at this time, Jesus' arrival was quiet uh, and quite unnoticed. For all but a relatively few select people that were told about in the Gospels, the four books of the Bible that tell the story of Jesus' life, for all but a few, life was going on as normal. The last prophet that God's people had heard from was Malachi, who preached in the 5th century BC, who had left them, uh, God's people, with the anticipation of this coming Messiah, who would bring with him uh, judgment along with healing. And after that, there was silence from the prophets. The Jews were waiting for this promised Messiah to come to bring about these glorious promises that God had made to Israel. And in the meantime, they had gotten along with their lives. And while there was relative, while there was silence from the prophets, there was a lot going on in the ancient world. Politically, the Jews were divided. Israel, uh, the Jewish people, had been scattered in the 6th and 7th centuries BC by the invasion of the Babylonians. And while they had been at least partially restored to their land within about 100 years, they no longer enjoyed national sovereignty, and so they were under the, the rule of various nations, various empires, uh, most notably Rome, which by the time of Jesus held control, a pretty firm grip over most of the ancient Near East. Religiously, for the Jews, the temple had been torn down at the time of the exile, but then after the exile, it had been rebuilt, ushering a period known as Second Temple Judaism. This would have been the temple that Jesus cleansed during his ministry. But even with the construction of the second temple, the temple worship of God's people had been forever changed by the time of exile. Synagogues had formed among the dispersed Jews who didn't have a temple to come to where they could gather and receive teaching in God's law. Schools of Jewish teachers had formed, most notably the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes, which, tra chain, excuse me, which trained rabbis up to be teachers of God's law. 
As these groups grew and gained followings among the Jews, there were also different political parties that formed, many of which blurred the lines between religious and political involvement, like the Zealots, who were Jewish nationalists, nationalists, often violent, or the publicans. Publicans, not Republicans. To speak just a little bit more about the Pharisees and Sadducees, because they're often mentioned in the Gospels, and they're here in our text this morning. Uh, both the Pharisees and Sadducees were kind of like a cross between political parties and religious factions. The Sadducees were, in a manner of speaking, political liberals and religious conservatives. They had made their peace with the government, but they were strict textualists who only believed in the inspiration of the written scriptures. In other words, if there was a doctrine that was proposed, it had to be clearly tied back explicitly to the books of Moses, the, the Torah, uh, or they would throw it out. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were a group that leaned politically conservative, more kind of separation of church and state, of temple and state, uh, but they were religiously more liberal. They were a larger and more popular group of teachers of the law, and they were more theologically progressive. They had developed the oral law, which eventually turned into the Talmud as a fence around the Torah. The, this oral law was a, a set of detailed interpretations, applications, amplifications of the written scriptures that the Pharisees shared in order to help people obey uh, the law properly. Most of the Sanhedrin, which is kind of the Jewish Supreme Court at the time, was populated by Pharisees and Sadducees. So it's fair to say that while these groups were very different, they together constituted the official religious leaders of Judaism at the time. So in those days, all that to say, life looks like kind of an ancient world version of our current political moment. There were different parties, different schools of thought. Uh, people were left trying to pick the side they thought helped them most faithfully follow God and also was most beneficial to them. Each of these groups had their answer for what was wrong with the world and what needed to happen in order to make things right. And so when John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness, it wasn't as though all was silent and quiet and all of a sudden here comes this person preaching and all of Israel said, oh, finally, a voice speaking. Not quite. There had been a lot of other teachers, zealots, preachers who had appeared over the years. And so at first glance, John the Baptist kind of appeared like a, uh, just another zealot trying to gain a following. With that said, something was different about John and his ministry. For one, he was out in the wilderness. Usually the prophets of God's people appeared, they went to the people. If you think about Jonah sent to the city of Nineveh or Jeremiah uh, a, lo a lot of prophets entered into the city and spoke in the marketplace where they could be heard, but not John. He was out in the wilderness. Also, his dress and diet were unique and important enough for Matthew to mention. Verse 4, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. According to the Jewish law, uh, locusts were the only clean food, excuse me, the only clean winged insect that it was appropriate to eat. And so in his diet, we see that John, even in the wilderness where it would have been difficult, was obedient to the Jewish law. Also, the mention of locusts invites this foreshadowing of judgment because most often in the Bible, when locusts appear, they are eating rather than being eaten. To balance that image of judgment, honey, John is eating wild honey. Honey appears several times in the story of God's people and recalls God's blessing, uh, both in the honey-flavored manna that God uh, fed his people with in the wilderness and also in the description of the promised land as a land flowing with milk and honey. So here's a man preaching repentance in the wilderness who wrote, whose diet reminds us both of God's judgment and God's blessing. And Matthew also says that he was wearing a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. 
Immediately upon reading this detail, most if not all of Matthew's Jewish readers, Matthew wrote his gospel in particular to Jews, most of their minds would have gone to a particular place. Elijah the prophet is a huge figure in the Old Testament, a huge figure in Judaism. Uh, in one of the most prominent stories in Elijah's ministry about him speaking judgment over a wicked king uh, and the king sending troops to come take him and Elijah calling down fire to consume the troops. It's, a quite, it's an epic scene told in Second uh, Kings chapter 1. Here's how Elijah's appearance is described. Listen, it says, Second Kings 1.8 says, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. So John's description, and by the way, I meant to mention this at the first, John the Baptist, the Apostle John, who wrote the book of John and the letters of John, those are two different Johns. I was probably a Christian for five years before I knew that. So John the Baptist, Matthew's description of John the Baptist is unmistakably quoting from Kings to show uh, this is Elijah. Here's what's happening. Here's the people that hadn't heard from God from, for hundreds of years, like I mentioned. And Malachi had foretold that before the Messiah comes to heal and to judge, God would send Elijah to prepare the way. If you're looking at your Bible right now, you can flip back just two or three pages, and you can see in the last paragraph of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, uh, this is what they were waiting for. They were waiting for Elijah to come and prepare the way for this coming Messiah. And here, just after that in our Bibles, the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, here comes John, this Elijah figure, preaching in the wilderness where Elijah's ministry took place. A message of repentance and preparation for the one who is to come. Jesus later on explicitly uh, testifies to this when he says about John the Baptist, all the prophets of the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, Jesus says, he is Elijah who is to come. It's from Matthew 11. And so that's the scene we're stepping into here in Matthew chapter 3. God's people were waiting for the coming Messiah, and while they were waiting, things had gotten loud. Things had gotten loud in the world around them. There were all kinds of voices speaking to them, proposing solutions, claiming authority, power, and their allegiance. And into this world, God sends John the Baptist as the one prophesied hundreds of years earlier to prepare the way of the Lord, to herald, uh, uh, to announce his coming, to prepare God's people for his arrival. And so with that context in mind, we're going to spend just a few minutes looking at our passage and at the message that John came to speak. And as we consider how John fulfills this important role in the history of God's people, it's my hope and expectation that we're going to see uh, that his ministry of preparation for Jesus wasn't just for a few thousand people who came to meet with him in the wilderness, but it echoes forward for us today. In the problem-solving process, looking at the condition of humanity, John points to a succinct definition of both the problem and the correct solution, and he anticipates the coming one who is far greater than he, who would implement this solution. Let's look for a moment at what John says in his announcement, verses 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew begins with pointing to the fact that the thing John came to do was preaching, which is interesting because we call him John the Baptist, meaning the thing we most readily associate with him is his ministry of baptism. But Matthew emphasizes that John came preaching, indicating that the message that John came uh, to speak, to share, to preach was quite important. And what was that message? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
there's three things I want to point out for right now about repentance. First, repentance is a very practical word. It's not merely a feeling of sorrow or wallowing in a sense of self-pity or shame. In Hebrew, uh, which John the Baptist and the Jews at this time would have been very familiar with, the word repent is a word that means a complete change, not just in your thoughts, but also in your way of life. Uh, you're headed in one direction, and you need to go around 180 degrees in the exact opposite direction. All of life shifts. Over the course uh, of my adult life, I've had a few friends of mine describe their professional experiences with going through business acquisitions, which usually look like bigger businesses acquiring smaller businesses. And if you'd forgive me of my ignorance, business people, as I understand it currently, there's a variety of strategies of going about acquiring another business. Sometimes the, the bigger business simply purchases the other business and then does very little, just leaves it to do, to operate as it was, it's just a transfer of ownership. Sometimes the customers don't even find out until much later that an acquisition has happened. Other times, the business that acquires a smaller business wrecks shop, so to speak, unseating those who've been running the business, uh, shifting employees into totally different roles, changing the overall direction of the company, and so on. So in the one model of acquisition, the employees tip their hats to the new owner and then keep on keeping on with how things were going before. In the other, the day-to-day -day operations change so much that it's like working for a completely new and different company, because you are. While this analogy isn't perfect by any means, what John is basically saying is that this acquisition has happened, and we're not exactly sure what it means, but I can tell you that everything will change. In order to prepare yourself, you need to not just stop doing what you were doing, but you need to renounce the old way of doing things and clean your schedule for the new boss who's about to show up. John's sense of the word repentance isn't general and vague, but it's specific and active. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For John, as well as for Jesus and really the rest of the Bible, there's only two kingdoms. There's many empires of the world, but there are only two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God. Matthew uses the phrase, he's the only uh, of the gospels to use the phrase kingdom of heaven, and it's likely uh, uh, out of Jewish reverence to avoid saying the name of God. Uh, so the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, same thing. There's the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the enemy, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of darkness. And there's coming a day, John tells us here in verses 10 through 12, when the sifting and sorting between these two heaven, these two kingdoms, excuse me, will happen at which point the kingdom of heaven will prevail. The world in which they lived at this time was full of voices telling them what would fix the problem that they were facing. The Sadducees were telling them that they just needed to read the scriptures right. The Pharisees were telling them that they just needed to heed the advice of helpful teachers who were giving them special instructions for how to obey God's law better. The Zealots were telling them to wait for the right opportunity to overthrow Rome. The list goes on. The solution is here, they're all saying. It's with us, we just need to get it right. But John, this prophet of God, points to the real problem, the problem of sin, and the coming consequence of God's judgment on account of that, and he gives the real solution. There is one coming, verse 11, who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. There is nothing you can do, nothing you have done, that will solve the problems you're facing, because first, the problem of sin must be dealt with once and for all. And there is one who's coming finally to deal with it. All you can do right now is prepare for his coming. 
through repentance, confessing your sins, being baptized in the water in preparation for this one who would secure your forgiveness. And that's the, the second thing that I want to say about repentance is that repentance involves confession of sins, as we see in verse 6. Rather than simply calling people to repent and then leaving them to figure out what that means, the ministry of John the Baptist actually invites people to walk a particular road of repentance. We read in verse 6, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Baptism for John, through repentance, was connected to and intended towards the forgiveness of sins. Here in Matthew, this connection is less clear, but in both Gospels of Mark and Luke, John's message is referred to by those writers as proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is, of course, not to say that John's water baptism was itself the instrument that washed people clean of their sins, but it is to say that God, through John, is presenting a material, bodily way of walking physically towards God's promised forgiveness, a visible sign of repentance to which God, one could be confident that God would respond with the grace of forgiveness. And the critical ingredient here was repentance, true repentance, which is accompanied, as we're told, by the confession of sins. As we read in Psalm 51, in the context of this beautiful and heart-wrenching prayer of confession of King David, he said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Or as the Apostle John, different John, writes later in the New Testament in one of his letters, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Repentance for John is not simply a mindset of neediness. While it certainly starts there, it also includes the specific outward confession and renouncing of sins and the pursuit of a new way of living. In other words, repentance doesn't happen without confession. As one commentator put it succinctly, when people really repent, they say so. And this is difficult. This is very difficult. I was going to say that asking uh, my four-year-old daughter to admit something wrong that she's done out loud is like pulling teeth, and that's true. But get a few grown Christian men or women in a room, and you will find that the same is true. I've been in seasons with Christian brothers where it's taken us, myself included, unfortunately, months, sometimes years, to build up the courage to share the deep, painful confession that we've been thinking about since the very first time confession of sin was brought up. But you know, one thing that I've learned, true confession is always difficult on the front end, but always wonderfully freeing on the back end. I have never regretted a single time I've confessed a sin, but it is hard. It's also more than simply saying words out loud. It involves laying aside your old way of life and admitting that the old way was wrong. Not, that, not just that you did it, but that what you did was wrong. It involves even more than that, admitting wrongdoing before the ones, whether God or God and another person, that will be most offended by what you did. And this is very difficult. But John acknowledges this. His very location suggests this. The third thing I want to say about repentance is this. Think about where John is. Verse 1, he came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. In verse 3, Matthew quotes Isaiah, 
uh, who had prophesied that this one preparing the way of the Lord would come crying in the wilderness. Verse five, we see that Jerusalem and all Judea in the region about the Jordan were going out to him in the wilderness. The fact that John finds himself in the wilderness and that people are going out to the wilderness to encounter encounter God through John's ministry is significant. It's right in line with the biblical theme that renewal begins in the wilderness. Listen to these words from Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel said this, and I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge out the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So you hear what God says to his people through Ezekiel. God will bring his people into the wilderness enter into judgment with them, bringing the children of Israel to the same place as their fathers, which is nearly verbatim what Malachi says in chapter 4 about the coming ministry of the Messiah. And through this judgment, God will bring his people into the bond of the covenant and purge out the rebels. You hear the same themes coming through here from the wilderness. Just one more, more brief. Listen to the words from Hosea chapter 2, another prophet. God says, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. And that also starts with God bringing his people out into the wilderness. So John's ministry is clearly connected to this theme of renewal in the wilderness and his invitation is to join him in the wilderness. But it wasn't simply a call to come and live in the wilderness for wilderness's sake. It was the invitation through the wilderness into a whole new way of life, a new creation, a new kingdom. In the creation account from the early chapters of Genesis with the world, the early verses of Genesis, with the world covered in water, God brought land for his people out of the water. In the days of Noah, in the the story of the Exodus, in the days of Joshua, God repeatedly leads his people through water into a new land as a picture of new creation. And here, new creation after new creation has happened. John the Baptist is inviting people once again into the wilderness to be baptized through water into a new kingdom that has drawn near. So you see the ministry of John presents this beautiful bringing together of all these biblical themes, the story of God's love for and relentless pursuit of his people. And his invitation is simply to repent and prepare for this one who has come as the fulfillment of the promised renewal. But there's a problem. While this solution is simple, the implementation is remarkably difficult because we don't like the wilderness. We don't want to go there. There's a sense in which John's call to repentance would not have been new to God's people. It wouldn't have been an earth-shattering call. Uh, not This isn't some new system that John came teaching. This was wayward Israel being called once again to return to the way of the Lord that they had, they had learned from Moses. The problem is that while the Jews had heard this for generation after generation, there was something lacking in their 
practice of repentance. This is evident from John's run-in with the Pharisees and Sadducees. Look with me at verses 7 through 9 of Matthew 3. It says this, Matthew, Matthew 3, verses 7 through 9. But when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. See, here were these men, these religious leaders coming out to John for baptism. There is some debate among commentators about what they were doing here in the wilderness, but I believe that the majority that I found uh, look at the question John asks them in verse 7 and, and believes that they have come to actually be baptized by him. So these weren't just Pharisees and Sadducees coming up to observe, but they were coming to submit to the baptism of John. They were nodding at, at John's call. Repent. Yes, yes, let's repent. Be baptized. Yes, we'll be baptized. Confess sins. Yes, let's confess sins. And John has a big problem with this. These were teachers of God's law, the leaders of the Jews, and evidently they had lost sight of what it meant to truly repent. You see, true repentance bears a certain kind of fruit. And John, when he looks at these leaders, doesn't see this fruit. Verse 8, bear fruit, he says, in keeping with repentance. Several commentators point out here that the significance of the fact, uh, the, excuse me, the significance of the fact that the fruit is singular here. John is not telling the people to pile up good works as good pieces of fruit uh, that would count in their favor. While good works will certainly follow, as we, as, as we see John saying, I believe what he's getting at here is the heart level, the posture of repentance. You see, when he looks at the Pharisees, when he looks at the Sadducees, rather than seeing the broken and contrite spirit of Psalm 51, John sees presumption. Verse 9, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. As Eugene Peterson paraphrases it, descendants of Abraham are a dime a dozen. What counts is your life. Now, John is not de denying the importance of the line of Abraham. What he is denying is that they are somehow immune from God's outrage at the abuse of privilege on account of this lineage. As we see elsewhere, the religious leaders of God's people, these Pharisees and Sadducees, had been twisting rituals commanded by God, as well as rites that they had come up, come up with themselves, into these perfunctory performances, rather than true appeals to God for forgiveness. They had slipped from contrition and true repentance into presumption. We were born into the line of Abraham. Case closed, they were saying. God will have mercy on us. They had been teaching this farce to God's people. As one rabbi is recorded to have written, in the hereafter, Abraham will sit at the entrance to Gehenna, which is the, the place of judgment, and permit no circumcised Israelite to descend therein. And here's the thing. John's rebuke, I believe, to this message, to this belief, to this practice, actually cuts to the heart of every human being. In fact, in Luke's account of this moment, Luke records this same rebuke, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, he records that almost verbatim, except that in Luke's account, John is saying this to the crowds in general. You see, just as the Pharisees and Sadducees had been presumptive of God's grace, so too had the rest of the Jews followed and demonstrated this very same thing, generation after generation. 
And as we read on in the New Testament, decades later, the Apostle Paul is still dealing with the same problem when he addresses the Roman Christians and corrects them for presuming on God's grace, asking, should we sin more so that grace may abound? And Paul has to correct them, saying, by no means. Do not presume that God's grace works the way that you think it does. And, as we, and we see this even today. Uh, excuse me. God's grace in forgiving wayward sinners is glorious and extravagant. That is true. With that said, it's not meant to enable the sin of God's people, but to draw God's people out of it. We see this even today in people who make similar claims of having Christian parents or going to church, even in people who say things like, if God is love, then he must be gracious enough to embrace me for who I am. If God is love, why would he want me to change my way of life if it makes me happy? The problem there, as with the problem of the Pharisees and Sadducees, is a presumption on God's grace that doesn't line up with what God has revealed about his grace in the Bible. The language about grace covering unrighteousness in a way that, the language, excuse me, is about grace covering unrighteousness in a way that leads to righteousness. Receiving mercy instead of judgment in a way that leads to an overflow of gratefulness that looks like contrite dependence on and obedience to God. To get there, though, to get to true contrition, true dependence on God is difficult. It requires a trip to the wilderness. If we can avoid it, we will. The wilderness is dangerous. It's a place of hunger and thirst. It's a place where your money won't work because there's no one there to buy things from. It's a place of vulnerability, of exposure, of insecurity. And we tend to do whatever we can to protect ourselves, to keep ourselves in control, to remain in a place of safety and security. Sometimes, life forces us into the wilderness. Sometimes, though, and I would say for many of us here and in our culture, the culture around us, life has done quite the opposite. Wealth, position, power, acumen, we are a well-fed and content culture, living right where we are. Some of you don't have any of those things and are saying, I am already here in the wilderness. Some of you do have those things, but other things have driven you out into the wilderness, like the loss of a loved one or a, or a traumatic experience or issues of mental health. But so often, even when we are thrust into the wilderness, we do what we can to avoid the pain and the true experience of it. We try to find our way out of the desert. I've just got to get the right frame of mind. I just need to find a new job. I just need to find that right relationship or take that vacation. Here, John the Baptist is literally in the wilderness, and people, including the religious leaders, have come out to the wilderness, to the place that is meant to thoroughly strip them of anything that, might de that they might depend upon in themselves or in the world around them so that they can be prepared to truly encounter the only one who can deliver them from the problem of sin, and they are avoiding precisely this. Nod your head in repentance. Oh, yeah, yeah I'm in a wilderness season right now. Man, I'm so grateful for the grace of God without truly coming to a place of abandonment, of surrender, of repentance. This is the temptation that the Pharisees and Sadducees had given themselves over to, and it's the temptation of our own hearts. It's easy to admit aloud that you need help, but coming to a place where that is the posture of your heart, a felt and known need for God's deliverance, that's hard. I've read this quote in a sermon before, but it's a good one. In the book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, Eugene Peterson writes this. 
He says, a person has to be thoroughly disgusted with the way things are to find the motivation to set out on the Christian way. As long as we think the next election might eliminate crime and establish justice, or another scientific breakthrough might save the environment, or another pay raise might push us over the edge of anxiety into a life of tranquility, we are not likely to risk the arduous uncertainties of the life of faith. A person has to get fed up with the ways of the world before, before he, before she, acquires an appetite for the world of grace. The life of faith comes with arduous uncertainties, and it's not the obvious choice of our minds or our hearts. It's only in the wilderness, feeling the desolation of the human experience, the hopelessness of the human endeavor to fix it, that we will be ready to receive the one who is to come and deliver us from it. And so how do we do it? How do we engage in the wilderness? How do we allow ourselves to take the trip to the wilderness? Simply put, we look to Jesus. Let me explain what I mean here. In the text, there's something interesting. Starting in verse 10, look at the descriptors that John gives of Jesus in his ministry. The axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat in the barn, but burning the chaff with unquenchable fire. These are strong terms of judgment that Jesus will come to bring. The thing is, it's hard to find these descriptors in how Jesus arrived at first. It's because in Jesus' first coming, he came to embody the grace of God before the coming judgment. The wrath of, com- the wrath of God is coming, John says. Jesus says the same thing. He picks us up and says, uh, in several places, the wrath of God is coming. As one commentator put it, God's wrath does not reflect the emotion of, da- of, of anger, but that part of his holiness, excuse me, God's wrath does not reflect the emotion of anger, but that part of his holiness that actively repudiates that which is unholy in his creatures. In other words, in his holiness, God's wrath is inevitable. But when we look at Jesus' first coming, in the nature of his coming to take on flesh as a human being, we see, we see a man who came to live humbly, living a life of perfect obedience so that he could die the death that we each deserve on account of our sin, so that we don't have to. When Jesus died, the old creation died with him. And when he was raised to newness of life, he ushered in the new creation, this new kingdom inviting us to enter not through our good works, but through repentance and faith in his good works, the chief of which is his death for our sake. This repentance, this faith that we're invited to will not leave us unscathed. Baptism for us walks us down the road of what happened to Jesus. Death to sin as we were placed under the water as though closed in a tomb. And new life in Christ as we rise out of the water. In other words, baptism is no mere ritual affair. It's one that involves a death to the old way and a coming to life through, as John says in verse 11, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. The presence of the Holy Spirit in us calls and empowers us to live as citizens of this new kingdom and refines us with fire, burning away and purifying us what is, what is unrighteous in us for the sake of this new life. We want so badly to stay safe. There's this line in C.S. Lewis's uh, book series, The Chronicles of Narnia, from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And The Chronicles of Narnia is unmistakably 
a story about two kingdoms in battle with one another. The kingdom of the white witch on the one hand, who masquerades as this benevolent, pure queen, but who keeps her subject in her subjects in silent fear and dread. And on the other hand, you have the kingdom of the lion Aslan, whose death ushers in the defeat of the witch and the renewal of all the land of Narnia. And there's this one line where Susan, one of the children who has stumbled into Narnia, is asking Mr. Beaver, one of the citizens of Narnia, about Aslan. And Mr. Beaver says this. He says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Likewise, as we encounter Jesus and the call God is making to join him in the wilderness, without which true renewal is possible, we see that this is a call to leave the safety and security of life as we know it, to take up our cross and follow in the way of Jesus. But when we see that the sting of this death that we are called to is no more, on account of the death of Christ for our sake, we see that the way of abandonment and surrender is not a path that we're gonna be walking on our own, but a path that we will be walking with brothers and sisters behind a king who went before us. And we are given the Holy Spirit who raises us to this new life, working within us to will and to work for God's good pleasure. And so, as I close, hear the word of warning from John. No lineage, no ritual, no mere presence in a place where others are having spiritual experiences will stand for anything in the judgment. But only in verse 8, the fruit that is in keeping with repentance. But let's not finish with a warning. Hear the invitation. Listen, listen once again to what John says at the end of verse 9. He says, I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. This is really good news. While John uses this as a rebuke for, for the Sadducees and the Pharisees and all who would presume, that God, presume excuse me, that God would indiscriminately save all who can trace their lineage back to Abraham, there is another sense in which we can read and take heart in that particular statement. Three beautiful words. God is able. In the words of one commentator, John tells them that it is within God's power to raise up privileged people at any time out of the most unpromising material. From scripture, think about Rahab the prostitute. God raises her up, uses her to deliver his people, and she receives an inheritance with the people of God, a place in the genealogy of Jesus. Think about the apostle of Paul, the slayer of Christians, a Pharisee himself who encountered God and repented, finding life and joy in ministering for the sake of the kingdom of God. Think about Matthew himself who wrote this letter, who was a tax collector, hated not just by the culture, but by his fellow disciples at first, who is now writing these words to us, having encountered God. Now think about your own life. Think about the best person you know. Think about the worst person you know. Each of them, including you, has received this offer. God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So repent, come to him. He is eager to hear your confession and your need, and he is able to raise you up with him, to make you like him, to make you a part of his body and to use you with a new family of brothers and sisters to actually fix and right the wrongs that are in the world around us. May we be a people who repent and who come to him in faith. Let me pray for us.
Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that you've given us together to encounter you through your word. I pray that you would help us to hear what you would have us hear this morning. That you would weave the truth of the gospel, of your love for us, and the outrageous lengths to which you went to procure our salvation. Remind us of that beautiful truth. Weave it afresh in our hearts this morning. Help us to believe it more today than we did yesterday. Help us to place our hope and trust in you more today than we did yesterday. And Lord, leave us, please, changed as we go from this place on account of our encounter with you alongside one another by the presence of your spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us the way of the wilderness, that you would help us daily leave our comforts, take up our cross, and follow you for your glory and for the good of our neighbors. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.